Great stuff. You can look at page 1220 uh, as we're going to walk through this last bit. This is a letter. Uh, we, uh, we, we reminded ourselves of that last week. And in any letter, you've got to have a good start, I was always told when I was a kid. Great start. Uh, and then the meat of what you're saying, and then you finish it off really well. And Peter here is finishing off with a tremendous encouragement, but challenge uh, over these uh, last few verses here. And uh, here we are pre-Christmas, just picking up on a number of elements, which I think are really, really helpful. Now, obviously, there's a particular focus here on leadership. And um, the first thing I want to say really about um, leadership is that as crises increases, leadership must increase, mustn't it? It's fascinating that the big crisis at the moment is about who are our leaders, you know, if we're looking around at the pandemic, as things get harder with the economy, and we look at war, what people are crying out for is good leadership, aren't they? They're looking for a sense of what, who's going to grab hold of this? Who's going to take things further? And we immediately jump on times, the trussonomics of the last few months, or whatever it might be, or leadership in, a, in the, in the you know, war in Ukraine or whatever, and we see these are the types of leaders, or these are the leaders we don't want to engage with. And Peter here is writing to all leaders. You see, what I want to say is that every single one of us is a leader in some area of our life. We all are leaders in some area of our life, even about leading ourselves. But actually, we are leaders. Say, for example, if you're a parent or a godparent uh, or a, a, a grandparent or whatever, you lead kids. If you're a big brother or sister, you lead your children. If you're a business leader or a manager or a small business owner or a ministry leader or a coach or a teacher or whatever it is, we are all leading someone. There's someone looking to us at some point in our life for leadership. They're looking for us to set an example to help us to make and help them to make good decisions. And you see, God helps leaders particularly by enabling them to understand about their experiences and using their experiences. I don't know about you, but my experiences of a life are important for what I am now. When we look back, there'll be successes and there'll be failures, plenty of failures with me, but I've learned from those things to enable me to be the leader that I am. And of course, Peter's modeling it on his own life himself. We see this guy, Peter, hopefully. There we are. Now, that is not Pipe, okay? That is Peter, okay? And it's from The Chosen. If you've ever watched The Chosen, you must look at it. There's been two series. There's a new series coming out, which is particularly focusing on the disciples of Jesus. It's a brilliant, brilliant um, TV series. But if you like, Peter, very briefly, was someone who'd experienced leadership uh, in, in lots of ways. He had a three-year masterclass. There were only 12 students. They learned by watching. And as crisis loomed, Jesus was going to be denied, uh, betrayed, put to death. And even Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, there is a test coming. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And you are going to fail. Effectively, that's what he's setting him up. And Peter's response is, no, not me. I'm Peter. I can rise up. I will stand with you. I will never let you down. And of course, the test of leadership with Peter was that he did. He denies Jesus three times and the rest is history. But what is remarkable as well is that when Jesus rises from the dead, soon after that, they are reconnected. And he reunites with Peter. And what does, what does Jesus do? He immediately reinstates him. 
He brings him back. That even though they've been huge failure, he restores him. And isn't that such a, a thing of hope for us? I don't know about you, when you think about the people you lead, whether it's in your family, whether it's in business, whether it's in ministry, whatever it might be, you might feel you failed or you messed up. Jesus is always training us as leaders for a different future. There's always a new thing. There's always more things that we can learn and we can gain. And I love the way he talks about when he's restoring Peter. He says, feed my sheep. Because the essence, ultimately, of leadership is that we are called to be shepherds. We are called to be servant-hearted shepherds. The goal to lead, to feed, to provide, to protect those that we are responsible for. Now, Peter here is speaking into a time of incredible cultural crisis. And in some ways, if you read on to the next letter, which we're not going to be doing directly, but if you go to 2 Peter, everything's getting worse. It'd be lovely to say that after 1 Peter, the church grew and it was amazing. It got worse. Christians got more persecuted. It was more and more challenging. I don't know about you, when you look around at the world today, sometimes you think, is it ever going to get better? Do you think about that? You think, mm, how long is it going to go on for? When people give their forecasts of what it's going to be, it's going to... What I want to say is it could well get worse, all right? Could well get worse. Peter's saying it could go get worse. So what do we do in what is perceived as the environment we're in? And we look at our world, which is broken in so many different ways, a sense of hopelessness. And families, the brokenness that is around is huge, a sense of hopelessness. We look even at the church. These are the, the, uh, on the front of the paper this week. For the first time since the Dark Ages... Which is, I don't know when you knew where the Dark Ages was. Do you know when the Dark Ages was? Between 500 and 1000, basically, AD, all right? It's when the Roman Empire finished and entered a period of time where, where Christianity, in many ways, becoming, became incredibly peripheral. Became, the barbarians took over, the Vikings, and all that sort of stuff around that time. And Christianity discovered what it really was. And you know what's really interesting? I did some reading this week about the Dark Ages. I love a bit of history. But prior to the medieval time, the church had to discover what it really was. And you know what? Maybe we are entering a period of Dark Ages. I don't want to be prophetic about it. But the reality is that for the church, we are increasingly on the edge of things. And I would suggest we're probably going to become more supposedly on the edge of things. But in that place... Even in the Dark Ages in history, the church discovered who it was. You had people like Benedict and other people who found a rule of life, a way of living life, that provided the basis for future generations to shift something that the church emerged out of. It moved from being, if you like, the center of power to being actually a place of purpose. Anyhow, I could really get going on that, but I won't. Because I want to talk about four things from in this passage. But we have to realize that even though we're in the middle of this crisis... What is it that Peter, towards the end of his letter, sets out for each one of them to do? Firstly, verses 1 to 4, select your shepherd. Select your shepherd. The key question we've got to ask always is, who are you going to listen to and who are you going to follow? These are the two biggest questions of life. Whether we like it or not, we are affected by the things we listen to, we take on board. That's why the social media revolution is so massive, because we're having information coming in on a whole load of different areas. And whether we like it or not, we are influenced by that culture. We have to decide who are we going to follow and who is going to lead us. And in the midst of it, Peter says, the sufferings, he says this. Basically, he said, 
Peter said, I saw Jesus lead through suffering, so now I will lead you through it. What he's saying, the key initially is follow Jesus. It sounds really simple, doesn't it? I said to someone the other day, I said, we're looking at a series that we're going to do in a particular uh, uh, place we're in. And we thought we'd do Jesus. <laughs> and they went, oh, wow, yeah, that'd be a really good idea. It was the school, actually. <laughs> I thought, we're going to do about Jesus. But it's funny, isn't it? When you say we're going to do about oh, yeah. It'd be good to do about Jesus. We're going to do the stories of Jesus uh, next term. But it's all about Jesus. The glory to be revealed, it says. You see, what we have to remember ourselves, in this verse 4, it says, one day he's saying, basically, the glory will be revealed. Verse 1, in fact, that you might share in the glory. So you go through Christ's suffering to know that one day it will come good. If you go right to the end of Revelation 21, what do you see? You see, Jesus wins. We need to realize that if we know Jesus, we are on the winning side, ultimately. And even when everything seems dark and appalling, I need to have that spoken over me. Jesus wins. Peter's saying here, even though you will go through suffering, one day you will share in the glory to be revealed. So what should this leadership that follows Jesus aspire to? He's writing as an apostle. He's writing as someone in oversight. And he refers to two people here. He refers to elders and shepherds. And I would say here what he's primarily talking about is there are two different types of leaders almost. There's the need for, within any church environment, there needs to be people who are the organizational types. There are, if you like, the elders who steward the money, the admin, time. They provide if like a structure to build the house. And you can have lots of those structural people. It's important. If you like, more like the managers. But then you also need those that are the relational leaders, if you like, the shepherds. They're the ones who build up the family to enable it to be not just a house that operates, but a home where people can feel at home. And of course, what he's saying, what is going on here in verse 2 onwards, he's saying, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. And then he goes on to say, in the end, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. That character is the most important. So what are the things he's sometimes say, say, saying here about what um, any shepherds or uh, leaders should be doing? Can I just say I'm speaking this to myself, I'm writing this to myself, but actually all of us, as I say, are leaders. Firstly, we need to exercise oversight. We need to watch over them. What he's saying, leaders need to lead. I know it sounds simple, but sometimes leaders can sit back a little bit and say, well, why isn't everybody else doing this stuff? But sometimes we need to actually lead and enable as we do that. Because leaders are called to weigh up the situation, uh, maybe opinions, and say, this is where we go. Whether you're a leader in your home or your work or your family, you need someone to lead. It's like children. You know, sometimes, I know it's very tempting as a parent, you just want to leave your kids just to do whatever they like. Just to do whatever. Sometimes people do that. You see it, don't you? People just say, yes, just you do whatever you like. The trouble is it ultimately leads to self-destruction. So as a leader in that situation, you have to take responsibility. Because the act of love provides and protects them. 
That's why you do that. That's why you speak into a child's life. That's why you speak in very often as a leader to say, well, this is the way we go. It might not seem much fun. It might seem difficult in this situation. Sometimes, to be fair, even in church, you have to say, no, I think this is where we're going to go. I think this is what God is saying. And a bunch of other people saying, I just don't think that's right at all. But we're going to, you know, then, 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 then in a sense, you have to lead. And sometimes that produces some challenges. But he's saying, you need to watch over and you need to lead. But why do you do it and how do you do it? It says, you do it willingly as God wants you to be. And that's an amazing thing sometimes because I've got to say, you know, sometimes wake up on a Sunday morning and I think, oh, why is it Sunday comes around every seven days? It just seems to be so regular. And there's a part of me thinking, oh, particularly this morning, I mean, this morning, you know, I was all snugly in bed under the duvet. I mean, get up. Now, thank you so much for coming and joining me in this act of worship. But the reality is sometimes the lady has to say, no, I'm just gonna, I've got to be there. But it's saying here as well, which is lovely, it's saying, do it willingly. You know? And sometimes I do go, Ugh, and then I go, yeah, right. I get up and see these gorgeous people as we gather as the family of God to be expectant of what God can do. It says willingly as God wants us to do. And that great reminder, it's God who calls us. God is the one who gives us energy, grace, and time. For he who is called you is faithful, and he will do it, as he says in 2 Thessalonians. So do the things that I should be doing, but do it because God is calling us to do it. Now, that's an interesting challenge. Because I know sometimes I can get caught up in the things that I love doing, rather than are they things that God wants to do. And I've made mistakes over the years all the time in this area. Things that I've thought, yeah, that's the thing to do. But actually, when I look back, I think, was God really in it? Or was it my own? We constantly have to ask that question. I made mistakes. And, and yet, I seek, we seek to do that. Why do we do it? When you do it, do it eagerly. It's saying there in, um, in verse 2 and 3. Uh, verse 2, it says, do it eagerly. Wow, isn't it great? You've had an invitation here to come and help with the refreshments. We only need, what, five or six people? Five or six people. You've got three. Three other people. Three people. And when you're doing it, you're going to say, Caroline, you know what? I'm so eager to serve. I'm going to come and serve. I'm going to use that as an environment. And when we do it, even when the guys come and do the coffees and teas, and when we do it, I'm sure we turn up and say, yeah, I can't wait to be here to do it, don't we? Well, the point is, that's a challenge to that. Do it eagerly. The point is, there's a difference in there. People doing it on duty because I've been told to do it and I have to do it because I'm a Christian. Or... Do it eagerly. Do it with a sense of, isn't this an opportunity to bless someone? The way I give a coffee, the way I give a tea, the way I open the door is an eager way to serve and show the love of Jesus. Getting so excited that my ear place is coming out. Become eager, it says, with it. There's something about it that exudes. There was a guy, who, one of my mentors, a guy called Clive Collier, who was my vicar when I was associate in High Wycombe. And the thing about him was that <coughs> incredibly busy, incredibly focused, But the thing that really came through in his character was there was an eagerness to do the things of Jesus. Every time he'd say, is Jesus in this? And then he'd have grace to do it. He'd have grace to do it. It does say things as well uh, that you shouldn't do as leaders as well in this context. You shouldn't do it for dishonest gain. Peter says here, because he had experience of this. You think of Judas Iscariot, one of the other disciples. Uh, it says dishonest gain, verse 3. Uh, oh no, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, verse 2. You know, actually, uh, he'd seen Judas 
who for you know, all that time was understanding about Jesus and who Jesus um, was or listened to it, but basically had a completely different scenario going on in the background. There was dishonesty going on there, which ultimately um, was, was uh, revealed in that time before Jesus died. And you know, we have to be clear about that. Why am I doing what I'm doing? You know what the biggest danger of being a church living vicar is? I'm really, really comfortable. I'm really comfortable. I've got a whacking great castle behind here. I've got a pension. I, get, I don't get paid hugely, but, you know, I'm doing well. I'm fine. And you know the biggest danger? I'm not saying it's dishonest gain, but actually if you don't watch out, you become just comfortable. And you actually, in the end, are just going through the motions. And actually, he, I think he's challenged, he's challenged me on that front, that actually, what is my motivation now, actually, if this all went, what would it mean? Would I still serve Jesus? Would I still follow him? Would I still be prepared to say, okay, I'm going to move out of my castle, my nice big park that behind me, behind the house, and I'm going to move in somewhere else because of the sake of the kingdom? Because ultimately, Jesus is bigger than the institution that I work for. And that has to be the case. And that has to be the call. He's saying here, it's not for dishonest gain. I'm not lording it over those entrusted in your care, not domineering. You know, and that's, that's always a challenge, always a danger. People perceive, probably perceive that because I'm quite a strong leader, they think sometimes, well, you know, I'm not sure about Andy. He's a bit, I hope you don't see me as domineering. But I'm someone like, you know, we can so often, it's such a scary thing. And power corrupts, doesn't it? And we have to be so careful. And that's a reminder to me, it's a reminder to any of us that we need to be so careful not to manipulate. That's why I surround, my, to surround myself deliberately with people who tell me when I'm getting out of line. My wife starts it, but everybody else around me, genuinely, I find people that speak in and tell me. And I've been stopped from doing some ridiculous things over my life. And I'm so glad for that, deliberately to have people, because that's the last thing you need in any leader in any way, shape, or form. And why do we do it? The ultimate reward. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. A reminder that regardless, in those moments when I get a bit pathetic, when I feel like giving up, when I feel like I've turned up and nobody's there, why aren't they with me? It's only me on my own. I do admit to that. And there's those moments. I have to remind myself, who am I doing this for? I'm doing it for Jesus. And the crown of glory one day, that is enough. That one day I stand before him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You're all right, mate. That is the core of my life. And yet so easily in my pathetic self-esteem moments, I fall under that. So in the trials of life, Select your shepherd. Secondly, find your flock. Find your flock. Verse 5 onwards. Basically, who are you doing life with? You know, it is so important that we are in relationship with others. You see, as someone said, isolation causes desolation. You know, sheep on their own are not safe. That's why they have to be in a flock. They need to be in a flock. And God is a relational God right at the heart of who he is. Um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's why we need to be so much better uh, in creating environments for us to be relating and drawing people together. Particularly those that are single. 
in our congregations? How much are we truly seeking to be family? How much are we truly seeking to reach out to them? Over this Christmas period even, how are we drawing them in? Because relationship is vital. We need to be looking out to one another. Just on that front, if any of you are on your own on Christmas Day, or you need something, you know, you'd like, like to meet up with someone, we can fix you up, all right? So please see me because it's important. On that day in particular, we're talking about, but actually, we're called to be in relationship with others. We need one another, the older, the younger. He talks here particularly about the younger. He's saying about younger people, finding older people, finding others who are older and wiser, more mature. Because the reality is when you're younger and a whole bunch of younger people, and you see it in social media as well, and younger people getting on it, and the stuff they're coming out with is just terrible sometimes. And sometimes they could just do with an older, wiser person saying, why did you say that? Why did you do that? He's saying here, he's saying here, in the same way, those who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Just recognize that. And that's what's glorious about this church. We have older and younger we have lots of different ages, and we, we need to. I know we need to work harder at trying to bring ourselves together, but it's, it's, it's a two way thing. You know, as older folk, go and chat to those that are younger. For those who are younger, talk to those who are older. Let's learn from one another. There's so much to learn across the backgrounds and, you know, and, and, and ages and whatever. And that's a challenge to all of us because ultimately, what we're called to do as well, Peter says here. Submit ourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. What he's saying is clothe yourselves. Put on this thing of humility. Am I going to put on, a pr- on pride or am I going to put on humility? These things will affect our entire day. C.S. Lewis once said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You see, there's such a danger in pride in it. Pride fundamentally is all about yourself. It's making you at the center of the universe. When I'm proud, it's like, it's all, you know, it's me. It's saying, I'm at the center of the universe, and God and the others can orbit around me. Humility says, God is at the center of the universe, and we orbit around God. And there's room for others to be involved in that as well. So you're not alone. And if you are humble, he's saying here, you can have relationships because you leave room for others to join you around God. There's a humility. You're constantly saying, this is what I've found. Just come and see. You know, it's, a, you know, it's purely because of the grace of God I've discovered Jesus. Come and see. Humbly. I humbly ask you. Come along and see what I've found. I humbly ask you, please come with me to this carol service because I've found this to be true, this faith in Jesus. And actually, I'd love you to come along and hear maybe something on the Christmas story. In the midst of everything else, I humbly ask you, please, please come. Please come along with me. Because, of course, we know in Philippians, it says that uh, in Philippians 2, verse 5, I won't dig directly into it but he says we need the same mindset as Jesus Christ what did he do he humbled himself gave up what he knew in heaven and became like us and died on a cross humility is mentioned 900 times in the bible 
And it's such a contrast from pride, isn't it? I heard this uh, contrast of things, which I'm going to put up on the screen now, which you may be able to read. It says this as a contrast between pride and humility. Firstly, pride is demonic, but humility is godly. Pride is natural. We naturally talk about being proud, but humility is supernatural because you actually have to choose to say, right, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to choose humility. Pride is like a demon, actually. Humility is the spirit that casts out that demon. There's something that breaks when we choose humility in relation to pride. Pride is how we war with God. That is usually the base of war, isn't it? Pride of nations that causes it. And humility is how we worship God. And finally, pride is the cause of most relational problems. Humility is the cure of most relational problems. And thinking of relationships, you know what? I have been involved with countless relational breakdowns in my ministry. And I would say these things are true. And I put this up here. Again, I borrowed these, uh, this particular, um, if you like, these particular uh, things here. But generally, I found that when it's been proud, proud plus proud, will always bring a battle. Two proud people together will always bring a fight. But proud and humble, the danger with that is it leads to abuse. So often. Pride in a variety of ways expresses itself in that way. But humble plus humble, that is a blessing. There's something about humility is saying here, the grace of God, therefore under God's mighty hand, that may, he may lift you up in due time. The grace of God through the power of the Spirit will command a blessing. And I encourage you, if you're in a relationship, you're married or there's relational things, just consider those things. Now, it is hard. I'm not saying it's easy. If you're someone who chooses the path of humility and the other person particularly is proud, that is so hard. And it can feel like we're being abused. And, uh, you know, it's a huge journey we could go through in relation to that. But actually, that is the call on our lives in terms of relationship. Very briefly, just want to move on. Look out for the lion. Now, you may not know what that picture is. It's from a video from about January this year of a lady in Kuwait carrying her lion through the streets. Okay, She had a young lion, which was quite big, as you can see there. She was carrying the lion. Uh, As it said in the Daily Mail, it says this, she seemed quite relaxed, and the lion was growling a bit. Anyhow, she was carrying it under the arms. But what Peter is saying here, if you are to survive the crisis, number one, you need to select your shepherd. Number two, you need to follow the find your flock. Thirdly, you need to look out for the lion. And that's not the picture he's talking about here. He's saying there is a spirit realm. We've talked about this before. There is a spirit realm that's at work. That actually the issues of the world are not about people. They're actually about a spiritual battle going on that we pray into and be aware of. That the enemy, the devil, is on the prowl. You see, the devil is a reality. If Satan hates God and you love God, you're on the side of the war that's opposed to him. He is your adversary and enemy. And Peter says, watch out, look out, be careful, look around. And we see it all around, don't we? The devil is prowling, bringing destruction in relationships, causing incredible devastation, destruction. And what he's saying to you, I want you to be alert. We need more alerts. He's saying, 
Be alert. Alert. All right? Verse, um, it's in the Bible here. Be alert. Think about it. So you're going to say, I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be alert today. Because I'm going to be aware that there's a battle going on. Of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And what do we do in relation to that? He's saying, wake up. In those times when you're tired, depressed, when you find yourself falling in temptation, wake up. Resist. Stand firm in the faith. How do you do that? By dwelling. By spending time in God's presence. You are resisting the devil by being here today, actually. You're saying, I'm not going to come under the duvet. I'm not going to come under the things. I'm going to choose to get up there because I want to be there because I want to resist the forces that are coming around me. I want to come together with my fellow brothers and sisters. I want to learn. I want to discover. And I'm resisting the devil. You know, there's something really powerful about that. And we've got to realize that as we enter, what I would say is increased persecution, which is going to manifest itself in quite subtle ways. I was with Danny John the other day, and he was saying in India there's incredible persecution going on. Underneath what is supposedly a secular state, it's a deeply desire to make it completely Hindu. And the Christians are being wiped out first, and then it will be the Muslims. The reality is we live in persecuted times where Christians are going to be under more pressure than ever before. We need to be on our toes. We need to be aware that battle is coming. But we do it very briefly, coming to this point, because he's coming for you. And this is, uh, uh, in the chosen, this is the picture of Jesus. He's coming for you. He's saying here, he's saying, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you. He will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Isn't that a glorious promise? That even though the stuff of life, which weighs us down, when we look around... It's like everything's going to come back fully into alignment one day. That is what we're standing in, in the midst of Advent. That's what we're glorifying. Jesus will make it right one day. And we praise God for that. Amen.